And this, uh, this week we will look at verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, the first 12 verses of chapter 2. And I think that uh, we may be able to read those together. <clears throat> let's, read them, let's read these, uh, these scriptures together. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, even by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, And bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Say a prayer. Lord, be gracious to your people today by giving them your word. Lord, I pray that you would do this through me, but Lord, at the very least, in spite of me. And we prayed in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> now, you reading this, uh, or any of you that read ahead, I hope that you uh, prayed for me. But this is uh, kind of this text, if you've read ahead, requires no introduction. This is a very intriguing text, and I think it's intriguing for a multitude of reasons. As a matter of fact, this passage of Scripture has built for itself uh, the reputation of being one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to grasp in all of Scripture. It has baffled numerous theologians. As a matter of fact, this was one of my favorite quotes that I came across over the last couple of weeks studying this. Speaking of this passage, Augustine of Hippo, or we know him as St. Augustine, famously said, to be quite frank, I'm not sure what Paul meant here. 
the mention of the man of lawlessness, often, who is often connected with the Antichrist and the apocalyptic beast in John's writings, uh, the identity of the restrainer that we just read about that's mentioned in this passage, uh, questions of what Paul meant when he talked about being seated in the, the, the temple. Um, it's garnered much speculation, and I'm sure you're not surprised. Uh, a lot of strange interpretations. <laughs> but uh, also, I will readily admit to you uh, that my sermons are often disappointing, but um, I promise that that's not my aim. That's not what I'm trying to do, trying to do. But I think that today I may be in greater danger than usual uh, in, in disappointing some of you, especially those of you that may, came, may have come in hopes that I would reveal to you the identity of the Antichrist or uh, some of the other numerous mysteries that are uh, contained in, in this intriguing passage of Scripture. Uh, I, uh, it is not my intent to do this. As a matter of fact, we'll see in a moment. I do not believe it's Paul's intent to do this. But anyway, as intriguing as this this text, this passage of Scripture is, and intriguing and as tempting as it has been even for me to try to figure out all of all of the mysteries that the the Apostle Paul uh, talks about here. I can only go as far as Scripture reveals. And so that's as far as I'm going to go. What I I do see revealed in the text today, I want to place under three headings. And that is, don't be shaken. Don't you remember? And don't be deceived. So don't be shaken, Paul says in verses 1 through that first part of verse 3. So with all, this, all of this intrigue and all of the temptation that, to figure things out, I think we need to see that Paul has a pastoral intent here. He doesn't have necessarily an eschatological intent. Or he doesn't necessarily have the desire to be mysterious. I should at least say that. It's not necessarily to reveal the identity of the man of lawlessness or the restrainer or to explain what he means by being seated in the temple. Rather, Paul states his intent in verse 3 when he beseeches or pleads, as the original language has it, with the Thessalonians not to be shaken in mind or alarmed as it relates to the coming of of Jesus. Don't be shaken in mind or alarmed. This is what Paul is after. This is his pastoral intent. I don't want you to be shaken in mind. I don't want you to be alarmed or disturbed. And we can take from what Paul has said here that some sort of false teaching had uh, found its way into the Thessalonian church through some means, probably through one of the ways that Paul mentions in uh, verse 2, through a, a letter that seemed to be from him or through some word of prophecy or something like that. Someone said that the, 
that the uh, day of the Lord, that Jesus had already come back. That uh, per- perusia or parousia, which is what he says when he says the coming of Jesus and the gathering of the saints had already occurred. Potentially causing the Thessalonians to become disturbed and unsettled. I think it is of note here, just in passing, that Jesus, uh, or rather Paul mentions the coming of Jesus and the gathering of the saints. And the reason that I mention that is because there's a, a popular understanding that Jesus came in judgment in A.D. 70, and that was actually the return of Jesus. And this the, uh, Thessalonians was written prior to A.D. 70, But I think that in believing that or saying that, we are in danger of making the same mistake that Paul confronts here. And so he doesn't just talk about the coming of Jesus, the parousia or the parousia also includes the gathering together of the saints. And so we are talking about an event that has yet to occur. And so they were saying that this gathering had already occurred And the Thessalonians were becoming disturbed or unsettled in their mind. And it's amid this false teaching that Paul pleads with the Thessalonians. He beseeches them, or we would say he begs them not to be shaken in mind. Or keep your senses about you, or or don't lose your wits or sensibilities. Be stable and be clear thinking. He also pleads with them not to be disturbed or uh, alarmed is what he says, uh, what it says in the ESV. He wants, and, and it's really anxious or agitated. Don't become anxious or agitated because of this false teaching. Paul earnestly desires that the Thessalonians be calm, stable, clear-headed, clear-thinking, so that they are not deceived. And then with this in mind, with his desire that they not be deceived or disturbed, he goes on to give them some true information concerning the things that must take place before this day of the Lord or this coming of Jesus and the gathering together of the saints. And this was actually something that he had alluded to uh, and we heard it preached last week and Uh, chapter 1 and verse 7. And he also wrote to them about this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 5, 11. So this is something that Paul has already dealt with. But Paul wants them to know the truth about the coming of Jesus so they are not anxious and unsettled in their minds. And I think already we can learn from this text. We're just a few moments in, but but we can learn from this how, how easily... Does falsehood unsettle us and cause us to be fretful and anxious? Often when we become disturbed or alarmed or fretful and anxious, it is always some deception or falsehood that has created that anxiety or or, uh, alarmedness in our own hearts. And so how do we combat the anxiety then? Is it to take some anxiety medication or something of, of that nature? Well... Uh, the way that Paul combats this anxiety that accompanies or arises from false teaching anyway is with the truth. He gives them the truth. 
And we must know the truth. If we are going to be settled in clear thinking in the day and age we live in, we need the truth. We must believe the truth. We must love the truth. So we are not easily unsettled and disturbed by the winds of false doctrine that are constantly and increasingly swirling around us. So Paul combats this false teaching going around in Thessalonica by confronting the false notion that the perusia or the parousia or the coming of the Lord and the gathering together of the saints had already occurred. He combats that false notion with the truth that prior to this coming of the Lord and the gathering together of the saints, two things must happen. And that brings us to our next point. Paul says in verse 5, don't, don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? We've, we've talked about this. Don't be shaken in mind. I've, I've talked about this with you. I have conveyed this truth to you. So Paul says that the day of the Lord could not have occurred already because the two things that he said would happen before that day have yet to happen. Namely, a great apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Apparently, Paul taught them at the very least, about the things that we read in this passage when he was with the Thessalonians the first time. He said, don't you remember that we talked about this? And he hasn't, he, we read what he wrote to them. And so this must be part of what he taught them when he was with them as we read it in Acts chapter 17. He, he must have talked about the, the coming of the Lord and the gathering, gathering together of the saints and, and even apparently talked about the man of lawlessness and this rebellion that would take place and, and things of that nature. He says that, that uh, he talked about, don't you remember that we, that we talked about these things? Even considering verse 6, it looks like that they knew who the restrainer is. He said, and you know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. I, I think that some of us... Uh, in, if you've ever studied this passage of Scripture, might be like, well, Paul, I wish you would have shared that information with us as well. But he didn't. We have to just trust uh, the sufficiency of God's revelation. But, but whatever, it's probable that Paul told them even more than what was written here. And so the Thessalonians may have had a better understanding even than we have of what Paul meant especially as it relates to the man of lawlessness and, and the restrainer. But I, we have to say that we can't know that with absolute certainty. But what we do know is that this was something that Paul had talked about. But either way, Paul says that the day of the Lord could not have already occurred because this rebellion must happen first. And that word that appears as rebellion in our translation is the word apostasia or apostasia. And I think that you can uh, hear it is where we get the word apostasy, which means a falling away from the faith. 
So Paul is saying that there will be a great number of those who profess to be Christians who will fall away from the faith prior to this gathering together of the saints and the coming of Jesus. As a matter of fact, this is not the only place that the Apostle Paul taught this. If you have a a thin line Bible, you can just flip one page over, or I'm sorry, a cup, two pages over. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So Paul taught this, but Jesus himself taught something very similar in Matthew chapter 24, verses 10 through 12. Jesus said, And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And I think that you can see that that passage of Scripture parallels our text today in several places. But then Paul gives a glimpse even of what this apostasy will look like in our text in verses 9 through 12. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this is what the apostasy will look like. Many will be deceived by signs and wonders and by this man of lawlessness because they refuse to love the truth, but they love unrighteousness instead. Did you see that? They, these strong delusions are given and they follow after these signs and wonders with wicked deception because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. But they rather have pleasure in unrighteousness. The fact is, beloved, unlike truth, signs and wonders rarely confront unrighteousness. Which is why the wicked and perishing are so ready to follow them and so unwilling to love the truth. There is an immediate connection between a love for signs and wonders, and not loving the truth. Paul makes that connection here. An immediate connection between that and this drastic or great apostasia. I'm not even going to try it. Uh, A fifth time. The second thing that must occur before the parousia or the perusia and the gathering together of the saints or this day of the Lord is the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So either this man of lawlessness will lead this great apostasy or he will arise in the midst of this great apostasy and will take advantage of it 
and then make it worse. So there's a great falling away either led by him or there's a great falling away that he comes on the scene in the midst of and just with the signs and wonders just makes matters worse and deceives more and more. And now who this man of lawlessness is, (laughs) you can imagine has been a source of debate and conjecture throughout church history. And there have been some outlandish ideas. I I heard, as a matter of fact, I heard a lecture where a man said, and I don't know where he got his information, I couldn't find that, but he said that every American president, except for Gerald Ford, has been called the Antichrist. (laughs) There are a lot of of differing ideas that are made, a lot of solid cases have been made by great theologians concerning who this man of lawlessness is. For instance, a solid case has been made that this man of lawlessness was Nero, the the Roman emperor, uh, who would have risen to power if Second Thessalonians was written early fifties, he would have, uh, which we believe it is, he would have uh, A.D. He would have writ, he would have risen to power just right around this time in fifty four A.D. Listen to this: he even bore the nickname the Beast. And listen to this: the cryptogrammatical value of the name Nero, and this isn't some outlandish thing like cryptogrammatical uh, va- valuation is like. Roman numerals, so it's not psychotic or crazy. Uh, there, are, there are very faithful theologians who, who believe this. The, the cryptogrammatical value of the name Nero is 666. Not making that up. It's a true story. Both, both the Westminster Confession and my beloved 1689 Second London Baptist Confession actually identify the Pope as the man of lawlessness. And there are good reasons for those confessions to say that and for folks to espouse that even today. But given John's language concerning many Antichrists and the capital A Antichrist... Along, along with Paul's language concerning the mystery of lawlessness that's already at work, but this man of lawlessness, and then taken into account, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to compile a bunch of stuff into just a short, uh, short statements, taken into account the parallels in Paul's description here of this man of lawlessness, and then Daniel's description of this end-time opposer of God and God's covenant people, mainly in Daniel 11 and some in in Daniel 12, it seems to me that this man of lawlessness is the ultimate culmination of the mystery of lawlessness or the many antichrists into one great, powerful, deceptive, Satan-possessed person, or maybe I should say Satan-empowered person, that will be revealed at the end of the age and will lead a drastic falling away in the visible church. And that's all I can say. But with all that said, 
Everything I've read and heard preparing for this sermon over the last couple of weeks has had points of variance. Some more so than others. Which lets me know and lets us know that there's not a great consensus concerning the identity of this man of lawlessness. I spend the time that I spend because Paul spends the time he spends on this man in the text. But remember, the identity of the man of lawlessness is not Paul's point. And it is possible, as a matter of fact, I would say probable that Paul himself does not know precisely who this man of lawlessness is. Therefore, it's best for us to take what the text tells us about this man of lawlessness and be satisfied with the sufficient revelation God has given us in the text. I think this is a place where we just submit to the text, where we trust not only the inerrancy of Scripture, but also the sufficiency of Scripture and say we trust that God has given us what we need to know. So let's look at the text and what it tells us about this man of lawlessness. And let's just look at it in the order that it appears. He, ultim- he is ultimately and quintessentially anomia or lawless. He is the, the lawless one. He despises God's rule. He despises God's law. He despises God's word. And he sees himself as above the law, the law of God and any other law for that matter, in the place of God himself. Paul says that he is the son of destruction. And this is an interesting term. It's a a Hebrew idiom that denotes the fact that he is born for doom. So the revelation of this man immediately lets people know this guy's doomed. He is the son of destruction. He is born for doom. He may have great power and influence. He may have worked signs and wonders, but his destiny is destruction. Look at what verse 8 says, And when the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. For all His deception and lawlessness, His determined end is to be defeated by Jesus, and it's not even a battle. He will destroy Him with the breath of His mouth in the glory of the perusia, or the brightness of His coming. And so we say, who is this lawless one who exalts himself against God and and attempts to deceive the very elect. Certainly we are cautious about him, but those who love the truth do not fear him. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. He will oppose God, Paul says, and every object of worship except himself. And again, I have to humbly acknowledge that it is difficult to know everything Paul intended here. But what we can know is that this man of lawlessness is opposed to God. And he desires to be worshipped as God himself. 
Even if it initially appears that he is a religious leader, there's difficulty in, in, in understanding how is he going to cause people to believe that he is in fact God himself. But regardless, he is opposed to God and desires worship or desires to be worshipped as God himself. And I will say that this is quintessentially sin. This is what happened at the fall in the garden. You shall not surely die. You shall be as gods. And so this man encompasses that human desire, that innate nature within mankind to worship something other than God. And he is going to receive that worship or desire to be worshipped himself. Next, Paul says that he is restrained. Now, restrained by what or restrained by who? Um, ultimately, by God. One of, the, one of the numerous great questions of this passage is who the restrainer is. Some say it was the Roman Empire. Others say that it's the Holy Spirit either in the ministry of restraint or working and abiding in the church, which is a, a view that is espoused by uh, numerous people today. But, but whatever agent it is that restrains the man of lawlessness, ultimately the agent of restraint is God himself. This lawless man may be outside of the control of the law, but he is not outside the control of God. Actually, the exact opposite is true. Paul can guarantee that he will be restrained until his appointed time. He will not show up any sooner than he's supposed to show up. And he will not last any longer than he is destined to last. God is the one that has control of this. There is no dualism. This is not Satan versus God. This is God controlling the eschatological or end time events in the last times. He will only be able to do what God allows him to do. Martin Luther rightly said, even the devil is God's devil. This Satan-empowered man or entity or whatever can do no more than God allows. He is restrained. Paul says that he will be empowered by Satan to perform signs and wonders. The ESV translates this as false signs and wonders. And this, I think, could potentially lead us to believe that these aren't real signs and wonders. But that's not the way that it's worded in the original. These signs and wonders are real. The better translation is that the signs and wonders serve the lie. That's why they are false. They are deceptive signs and wonders. So they are legitimate signs and wonders, but they serve the lie or they serve the deception. The man of lawlessness will work these signs and wonders so people will be deceived. And that's actually the way the NIV translates it and in other translations the signs and wonders that come through the man of lawlessness is by the activity of satan and will serve to deceive people to turn away from the truth of the gospel 
and believe what is false. And I, and I want us to, again, hear the implied warning to us, dear ones. It is a dangerous thing to seek after signs and wonders, as so many are prone to do so, even now. For to seek after signs and wonders, instead of loving and seeking after truth, will certainly cause you to be shaken in mind and alarmed, and potentially lead you to being deceived. Note verse 11. The man of lawlessness is at work by the activity of Satan. But God has not ceased to work. God sends them a strong illusion. Satan is at work through the Antichrist, but God is at work as well. Though he is working here in a way that is perhaps surprising to us. Therefore, God sends them a strong illusion. But note the therefore in verse 11. You know what you do with the therefore in the Bible, don't you? You find out what it's there for. When we see a therefore, that's what we do. What's it there for? And the reason God sends these strong delusions is seen in that second part of verse 10. With all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because. So that's what the therefore is there for. Because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. Why does God send? Why would God do such a terrible thing? Because they refuse to love the truth. The, the wicked refuse to love the truth. And so God sends them strong delusions. So they believe what is false. John Stott said, behind the great deception, there lay the great refusal. So in Romans 1 fashion, God gives them up to their own desires to follow after falsehood. Also, I think we need to remember that God is acting in judgment in this situation. Not only is He judging the man of lawlessness, but He is also using the man of lawlessness to judge the wicked and perishing who refused to love the truth, did not believe the truth, but rather have pleasure in unrighteousness. I see the appropriate looks of sobriety on your face. But then I think, well, Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And I know what some of you are thinking. I think I know what some of you are thinking. Everything that you have just said to us, Jamie, doesn't sound like the kind of thing that would cause the Thessalonians to not be shaken in mind or alarmed. In fact, it seems like the opposite. But... What I think we need to remember is that it is falsehood that was causing the shaken minds and the alarm among the people of God. The way Paul combats their fear is to go to the source of the problem and confront the false with the truth. Listen, it would be folly for Paul to simply soothe them in their shaken and alarmed state without, without ever giving them the truth that corrects the error 
that caused them to be shaken in mind or alarmed in the first place. Right? So the Thessalonians says, oh, they're shaken in mind and alarmed. And he says, ah, it'll be all right. It's okay, baby. Don't, don't worry too much about it. Oh, thanks. I feel so much better now. No, how do you truly, if someone is being shaken in mind and alarmed because of deception, how do you truly confront and go to the source of their fear? The way you do so is with the truth of God's Word. And, and the truth, though it may be somewhat unsettling, it deals with the issue. The issue is, the day of the Lord has already occurred. But Paul says, no, the day of the Lord hasn't already occurred because these things have to take place. And I think there's an immediate connection. Paul says, look, you are shaken in mind and alarmed because there is potential deception. And in the last days, there will be much deception that will be shaken everyone and people will be alarmed. I want you to know the truth about all of these things so that you are not shaken In mind, the truth confronts the falsehood. Paul is ultimately telling the Thessalonians not to be deceived. Do not be deceived. Rather, being deceived is the lot of the wicked, not those who love the truth. And I don't want to steal Dell's thunder for next week. But, but notice how Paul moves back to the Thessalonians in verses 13 and 14. He said, he's talking about verse 12, that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness, right? But then listen to verse 13. But, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. What is the ultimate truth that Paul combats the deception in Thessalonica with? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you have those who are under God's judgment at the end of the age. But those who love the truth, those who are chosen, called, justified, sanctified by the Spirit, and belief in the truth of the gospel, so they may obtain the glory of Jesus, you won't be deceived. What a confidence and a deep, settled peace the truth of God's Word brings to those who by God's grace have fallen in love with the truth. That's why we are sitting in this building today, beloved. And we see all of the the chaos around us. But we're not sitting there thinking, oh, I hope I'm not deceived. Oh, my goodness. I hope hope the man of lawlessness doesn't uh, take me away from the Christian faith. Oh, man, I hope I'm... No, 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 no. We're, We're not sitting there. We don't feel like that. And the reason why is not because it's just our natural tendency to be like no big deal. The reason why is because we have been called. We have been justified. We have been sanctified by the Spirit. Sanctified by belief of the gospel. And we know that we will receive the glory with Jesus. We have a deep settled peace. 
It seems clear to me that this passage shouts ahead to us then. All of us would agree that the mystery of lawlessness is at work now as much as ever. I I, I even thought about this. I, I would even say that many of us would not even be surprised if some guy gets up on the uh, national news tomorrow evening has been like, I'm the man of lawlessness and y'all should worship me instead of God. We'd be like, we knew it. <laughs> However, for those of us who know and love the truth, we are not shaken in mind or alarmed at these things. But does that not shout to us today? Lawlessness abounds, Jesus says, and the love of many are growing cold. Does it not shout to us today that we need to know, believe, and love the truth? And we know that the ultimate truth is found in God's special revelation, the Word of God. We need to love truth more than unrighteousness. We need to follow truth and not signs and wonders. We need to find our peace and security in the truth of God's word, not in the fleeting and rotting things of the world. And can I say, as I close, if you are an unbeliever here today, this passage shouts to you to turn from the deception of pleasure wickedness and unrighteousness and turn to Jesus. He will give you a love for the truth that will guard against the prevalent deception and chaos all around us. Gracious God, our hearts are restless as again has been said in the past, until it finds our rest in you. But when it finds rest in you, oh, what rest, what peace, what safety, what comfort. Deception all around us, chaos all around us, difficulties, hardships, we look on the horizon and we can't say we can't say anything with any certainty. But here we are gathered with people from all over this nation today. People who will gather today from all over the world. Gathered today, Lord, not at Sinai but at Zion. And with joy in our hearts, we sing of the one gospel by which we have been redeemed. With stillness of heart, we whisper the prayer, be still, my soul. God has not forsaken you. With anticipation, we shout to the top of our lungs, Jesus shall reign! We're not shaken, Lord. 
We're not disturbed. We're not alarmed in mind. And it's not because we're great. But it's because you have graciously given us the truth of the Word of God. You have given us your truth. You have revealed yourself in your Holy Son, Jesus. And so we take a deep breath. And just, Lord, as the Old Covenant people rested in a Sabbath on Saturday, we take a deep breath, even on the Lord's Day, on this day, and we rest in You. We trust in You. We believe Your Word. And we know that by Your grace, You will keep to the very end that which we've committed to You. Let that, let that truth ring in our hearts over and over again. When the car breaks down, when the unexpected bill comes due, when the child gets sick, when the boss is angry, when we're late for work, when something comes on the news that unsettles us, when the stock market dips and we're near retirement and we, and, and, and we worry about what it might look for us financially, like for, for us financially in the days ahead. When all of the things that are so, that so easily unsettle our hearts begin to take place this week as they inevitably will, let us be reminded of the truth of your word. You will hold us fast. Even if the deepest, darkest deception comes tomorrow, that you will hold us fast. And we pray these things in Christ's name.